Amen. It is certainly good just to, to kick things off with baptism, to press onward in worship through song, and then now to open God's Word together. You can open your Bibles to the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3. It's a book that's often overlooked in our reading and our study of God's Word, which is uh, just so sad because of the tremendous wealth of hope and uh, just solid truths that we find within this book. And I want to begin this morning by asking a question, and that is, what anchors our understanding through all of life's troubles? What anchors our understanding through all of life's troubles? And I ask that question because the modern emphasis that we see in our society and our culture at large is uh, the continual language and repetition of mental health. And that would have us think, uh, the society at large rather, would have us think that the secular answer to our problems can be found in medication, therapy, or even something less official, maybe self-indulgence, just a time of self-love and, and uh, just taking a break from the things that are uh, causing you to be stressed or uh, fatigued or whatever it may be. Now, please don't hear me as discrediting the need for good mental and physical health. All right. I simply want to point here. I want to point out a hole in the secular answer to this emphasis. What's missing from the secular approach to mental health is any acknowledgement of authority outside of oneself, any acknowledgement of the reason for the state of our world, and any lasting source of hope. For all of its attempts to provide helps for good mental health, it's all temporary. Because if anything changes, then you have to change the approach. This morning, as we walk through Lamentations, I want us to see the glory of God and the truth that He is working all things together for His glory, and that will be our good. The, the glorious grace of our God revealed to us in His discipline and in our trials. And we're going to do so by analyzing some of these difficult passages. This is one of the reasons why Lamentations is so often overlooked is because it is difficult to read. And it's not difficult to read in the sense that it's lofty vocabulary or hard to parse uh, writing style. It's difficult to read because of the truths that it espouses. We'll look at where our desires lead us in comparison to what God's discipline produces in us. We'll finish by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who stepped into our brokenness and became broken, that we might have a way out of brokenness. Having spent 10 years in student ministry, I loved taking students to camp. It was always one of the, the highlights of the year. And every year uh, on the Thursday night of camp, they had a special activity that they called nightlife for the particular camp that I, I like to take students to. And this nightlife activity was uh, interactive for the students. So it's a more serious activity which puts students and adults in a posture of deep spiritual reflection. 
In the final year that I took students to camp, the, the activity highlighted the reality that we all have areas of our life where we keep things in the dark. It might be a struggle, a sin, a trial, an anxiety, a doubt, a fear, etc. right? And what I love about experiences like that, that is that they challenge us to be intentionally authentic, authentic with ourselves and authentic with the Lord about those areas in our life in which we try to keep things in the dark. Moments like that help us bring those things into the light of the gospel as we realize that we all have similar things that we've been keeping in the dark and it helps us to see how we can bear those burdens together. But we also realize how the Lord has been using those things to shape and mold us. Why do I bring this up? Because reading the book of Lamentations is a similar experience. Ultimately, the place I hope all of us to come to today is a posture in which we authentically look at our lives and ask the Lord, how are you at work for your good and my glory? And then submit to join him in that work. I want to ask you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read our text for today, which comes from Lamentations chapter 3, starting verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word this morning, we come seeking authenticity. An authenticity which we too often in our fleshly nature try to avoid. But God, an authenticity which your word shines a bright light upon our hearts, helping us to see ourselves as we really are and as you call us to be. So God, help us to Step boldly into that light through the truth of your word this morning. Help us to deal authentically with our hearts this morning. And then help us to walk forward in obedience and worship to you. That your name may be glorified on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So again, we're in Lamentation this morning and a book which was most likely written by Jeremiah, although the book itself does not uh, give forth the author. But the language is similar, the timing is right, and uh, therefore we conclude that Jeremiah is likely the author. And Jeremiah, the same prophet whom we just read and finished reading, ministered for 40 years. And so for 40 years, he faithfully delivered a hard but necessary message of repentance and conviction. And he did so without seeing a single person respond with repentance. 
He was mocked, he was beaten, all for the sake of simply preaching the word of the Lord. That's what we saw last week, right? We looked and saw like the, the message that God gave him was to preach the very thing that God had already told the people, was the word. Now the Lord has tasked Jeremiah with making the people aware of their sinfulness in light of his consistent covenant faithfulness. And that's exactly what we read throughout Jeremiah's prophecy. So now here in Lamentations, all of that is in the rear view. And Jeremiah is giving a poetic and detailed description of the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. As you recall, in Jeremiah, the message is over and over again, return to the Lord. And if you don't, then judgment upon your sin is coming. And it's coming in the form of the Babylonians. And so now in Lamentations is the poetic description of what Jeremiah is witnessing at the fall of Jerusalem to the hands of the Babylonians. So judgment has come. So I want us just to read a little bit of this. If you'll turn back to chapter 1 there of Lamentations, you see what I'm talking about, just about the, the difficult message which is being delivered here and described. Imagine the scene, chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks among all her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So understand what we're reading here is he's looking at the city and seeing how lonely sits the city that was once full of people, full of life because of the Lord's provision. And now she's become like a widow. And she was great among the nations and she was the princess among the provinces. And now she's a slave to those very nations. And she weeps bitterly in the night, verse 2. She got tears on her cheeks. Why? Because among all of her lovers, so it's talking about the consistent unfaithfulness of the people seeking after uh, all these other false gods and all these other pagan religions and just assimilating those in with their daily life as the covenant people of God. So among all of her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All of her friends have dealt treacherously with her, and they have become her enemies. Judah's gone into exile because of affliction, right? So she now dwells among the nations where her dwelling place was supposed to be in the covenant promised land. Her dwelling place is now among the nations, the very nations which God pushed out so that his people could dwell in the promised land and be a beacon of hope and grace to all the other nations. She has to dwell among them now and no longer dwells and finds no resting place. Skip to verse 11 there of chapter 1. We continue reading this hard description of what is going on. And Again, it's very poetic. All her people groan as they search for bread. So this is not a depiction of like we're going to go on a, an easy journey here. Everybody is starving. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. 
We saw repeatedly as we've come to this point in the chronological timeline of the people of God, as God has consistently provided them with great wealth and treasures so that they can continue to be a beacon to show other people. That's what we saw in Samuel and Kings, right? Remember as the queen of, of um, the queen came, the queen of Sheba came to Samuel to see. And she see, comes to see the wealth. And she realizes and she cries out and prays to God. Well, now all their treasures, they had to trade them for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. This is the cry of the people here to God. Like, look. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. If there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce Anger. So we see they have a proper understanding of who it is that's afflicting this on them. They're, they're not just simply putting their problems off on, oh, it's that old devil again just trying to get you. They're not putting their problems off on, it's all these other nations. No, they're saying they're like, the Lord warned in his doing this. You skip down to verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. So this is an incredibly difficult thing. You skip to chapter 2, verse 17, and you continue reading. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. So the theology here is undeniable. The people's continued sinfulness led them to this point. And they now realize it. A moment which they thought would never come upon them. The day of God's judgment. What was it that we saw over and over again as we read through Jeremiah? And what, we, what you read in Jeremiah is the people had a justification, for all, a self-righteous justification for all manner of rebellion. They would say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So nothing could, bad could ever befall them because they had the temple of the Lord in their midst. They, they were the covenant people of God. So even if they were going after Molech and all these other false gods, even if they acknowledged God zero in their personal life, they at least acknowledged God in their public life, the temple of the Lord. They would continue their sacrifices to the Lord as well as living life as they saw fit. You see, what was it that the people were leaning on? Despite their blatant disobedience to God's word, they maintained their rituals, festivals, and sacrifices. So they arrogantly boasted in the temple as a symbol of God's continued protection. And here's the problem. The problem is this, and we need to take heed of it as well. Public devotion is meaningless when coming from a heart hardened by sin. What do I mean by that? Public devotion is meaningless when coming from a heart hardened by sin. Why is that necessary to know? Why is that so dangerous? Because the lesson that we need to take heed from, Israel and Judah, is that it is possible for us to 
selfishly acknowledge God publicly, all the while in reality keeping ourselves at the center of worship. Why would someone do that? What does that mean? Where, where, where do we see this in our lives? We would see someone do this because they want the votes that come with being loosely identified with Christ. Politicians on both sides of the aisle use this to control votes at the right time. You'll hear celebrities and athletes because they want the book deals, the TV shows placed on the biggest stages, all the popularity that might come with identifying with Christ. But then they want nothing to do with the required self-sacrifice that comes with being identified with Christ. We'll hear this all the time in our area of the world. People who offer up prayers and well wishes and all vague references to belief in God when it comes time to make a post or do something or ask for prayer or they'll acknowledge God then but have no fruit of Christ in their life. Let us not be named among them and let us see them as our mission field because the point of public devotion is for it to be flowing from a heart of repentance and worship. So church, let us not be a fellowship of believers who look pretty and say the right things, know the right doctrines, and all the while on the inside, we're wasting away for lack of repentance and abundance of pride. Jesus addressed this matter with the Pharisees because they had the same thought process as the people here in Jeremiah's time. Jesus addressed it with the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. The point here is that a cup that is clean on the outside but dirty on the inside is still useless to drink from. And that's the, the same thing is happening here with the people. They've all this while acknowledged God publicly while personally in their private devotion is completely devoid of any acknowledgement of God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 27 of Matthew 23, What are you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So on the outside, you look like you follow the law because you offer up all the right sacrifices, you do all the right things. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Self-righteous pride will keep us from all manner of godliness not excluding humility and repentance. Thus, Israel found themselves exiled to Babylon out of judgment of their sinfulness and as a part of God's ultimate redemptive purpose. And don't lose sight of that, that this is still part of God's redemptive purpose. That was the very point of seeing the new covenant there in Jeremiah 31. That though God is punishing now, it's to accomplish his greater purpose. And that's really what we're looking at here with the book of Lamentations. That in lament, we're forced to remember our sufferings and afflictions in light of God's sovereignty. So consider that in your own life. 
What are you struggling with right now? What are you dealing with? What affliction? Desperation? What is the darkness? Because as we pick back up in our scripture for today, our text for today, verse 19, it begins with this. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. So this is a declaration, a question to the Lord to remember. Jeremiah here wants, wants God to remember the affliction of the people. The wanderings and the wormwood and the gall. Wormwood was a bitter plant used throughout Scripture to refer to affliction and lament. It's a plant that tasted bitter. Gall here is the same word for bitterness. Why is it good to remember our afflictions? whether they be discipline or otherwise. Why would we want to remember? Why would we cry to God to remember? Well, look back at verses 1 and 3 here of chapter 3. Jeremiah laments, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. So this is seemingly one who thinks that torment, lament, despair is all that awaits him. This day after day. In remembering our afflictions, we are reminded who is in control and what brought about those afflictions. What a humbling thought that sin is the source of all affliction, and yet God can still use it for His glory and our good. And here's the issue that we would do well to remember. Those who remain in sin make themselves to be enemies of God. Why? Because God is the enemy of our sin. Yet indeed, all the world remains wantonly rebellious against God. So, we either choose to turn away from God and indulge in sin, or we bring ourselves in humble repentance to Him to say, I remember my afflictions in my life in sinfulness. Would you remember them and take them away? Paul addresses this in Ephesians chapter 2 when he reminds the church, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So again, there's a separation here that once you come to Christ, that that walk is no longer the walk, but instead the walk that Kimber displayed for us, the walking in newness of life in which you once walked. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we all once lived among the sons of disobedience. We were all once carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you either choose to be children of wrath or what's the alternative? Paul goes on to say in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. So that's again, when we were still enemies of God, 
still sons of disobedience, following the course of this world, the passions of our flesh, made us alive together with Christ. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God took the first step. While we remained enemies of his, this is the gospel. And as we are seeing the consistent theme throughout all of redemption history, is that man continuously chooses themselves. We continually choose ourselves as long as we remain in the flesh. We are sons of disobedience, having turned our back against God. What's the old pirate saying? Dead men tell no tales. The story here is dead men do no saving, right? So this next verse is where we start to see all of this come together. Jump back to verse 20 here of Lamentations 3. So we see, remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. The gall. This again, a cry to God. Verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So, again, the idea here is that he's crying to God to remember his afflictions, but now he's forced to remember his afflictions, and he says, my, my soul continuously remembers it. And what is the result of it? My soul is bowed down within me. See, God's discipline keeps us in a posture of humility. And this is the point of lament. That in asking God to remember, we ourselves are forced to remember and be humbled at his great mercy. Take note of where we're reading this passage. See, Lamentations is composed of five poems, four of which are completely difficult to read of, children, of people eating their own children out of starvation, of people begging to the Lord crying out and remembering and looking at the city that was once full of people but is now empty. But right here in the middle, in the third poem, in the middle of the anguish, the hurt, and the confusion, and the lament, we read this, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So even in discipline, God demonstrates his long-suffering faithfulness. For that's the point of discipline. This is true because the entire point and purpose of discipline is to point us back, to guide us to what is right and true. Because it's when we have nothing else to draw from, no one else to turn to, nowhere else to go, it's only then that we realize the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. See, sometimes God strips away everything in our lives in order to get our rebellious flesh to realize that He is all we need. The idea here of portion. Right, it's that awaited portion of the firstborn, the inheritance, right? And so he's saying here, what is the inheritance 
of my lament? What is the inheritance of my wormwood and my gall? It's the Lord. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When God does this, we need to see how God's discipline graciously guides us to deeper dependence on God's grace. The Lord is my portion means what do I get from praising God and trusting in him no matter what? What do I get from enduring difficult times? What do I get from enduring my own discipline at the hands of my own sin? What do I get from leaning on him through sorrow? I get more of God. It means I have no ulterior motives for worshiping God. Or showing my allegiance to him. Only that I get more of him and he gets all of my praise. That's the idea here of saying the Lord is my portion. It's to say I'm totally satisfied in him being wholly glorified. In everything. Whether it be sorrow or rejoicing. Whether it be lament or victory. The Lord is my portion. Therefore I will hope in him. That's what we continue to see as the results, the fruit of what comes from waiting on Him. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. So notice that waiting does not require laziness. It's not like we just sit back and just like, oh, well, I'm just going to sulk in my sorrow and wait to see what God is doing. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. So the idea here is that because God is the very definition of good, I will prayerfully and expectantly wait for the day of his salvation, not passively, but obediently. This is not calling to action Uh, attitude of sulking but an attitude of eager obedience to the Lord through the midst of whatever this sinful broken world puts us through and whatever God uses in the midst of this sinful broken world to bring us closer to Him. You see the proper response to God's discipline as we see it here is sustained repentant and worshipful obedience. Let me say that again. The proper response to God's discipline is sustained, repentant, and worshipful obedience. And this is what anchors our understanding through all of life's troubles. That was my question at the beginning, remember? What anchors our understanding in all of life's troubles? Well, if you are in Christ, this is it. This is what anchors our understanding in all of life's troubles. That in remembering our affliction, We are bowed down, but this we call to mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning because great is his faithfulness and that the Lord is our portion. And this should be the cry of our soul, that the Lord is our portion. portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. You see, God's goodness has been ultimately and definitively made known in one place, the ultimate place 
of suffering and lament, the cross of Christ. And as Kimber testified to us this morning, it is only in knowing Christ that we can be anchored to an everlasting hope that sustains all, that endures all. Why? Because he sustained all on our behalf. And it's only by trusting in Christ that you can cry this out from the midst of lament. It is only by trusting in Christ that you can realize, and that's the point there of verse 27, it's good for a man to bear this yoke in his youth. It means it's temporary. That it's temporary. That there's coming a time when he won't bear that yoke. But it's only through trusting in Christ that that yoke can be removed and temporary. So the challenge here this morning for the believer is where are those areas which you've been ignoring and not giving credit to, God, how are you working here in the midst of my sorrow and my grief, my lament? Where are those areas which you need to wholly submit and repent to him and seek his guidance? And then say, remember my affliction and my wanderings. My soul continues to remember it and is bowed down. But this I call to mind, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's the challenge for the believer. The challenge for the non-believer, if you're here this morning and you are a non-believer, is what anchors your understanding through all of life's troubles. Because whether you're a believer or non-believer or not, we still live in the midst of the same sinful, broken world. So it's either you endure those troubles with steadfast hope through the truth of God's word and salvation in Christ, or you endure nothing. You have no endurance. You just continually seek answer, empty answer after empty answer. So the challenge for the non-believer is submit to Christ and find hope everlasting. Let's pray. God, we love you. As we come before you this morning, having read humble truths, from your word. I pray, God, that it would do just that, that it would humble each and every one of us in this room, whether it be believer or non-believer alike. For your church, God, I pray that you would humble us at your mercy and discipline, that your discipline guides us back to yourself, that it reveals to us your goodness. Lord, may you be our portion. For the non-believer, God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. Reveal to them the emptiness and the brokenness of this world and the true life that can be found in submitting to the work of Christ on the cross. I pray, God, as we move into our time of response, that you would help each and every one of us respond accordingly. For your church, God, I pray that you would help us to, to stand and sing or sit in humble repentance or humble prayer. But God, for the non-believer, I pray that you would help them respond by moving forward in obedience. And if they need help, I pray that they would reach out to the believer next to them or find their way to the front for me to help them. And I pray that you would make that clear. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.